You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, the Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 5. Our studies of the last few days will have made it clear to you that it is altogether impossible to look upon the configuration of the spatial universe and its movements in the way adopted by modern science. For not only is the universe regarded as entirely separate from man, but even the separate celestial bodies, which appear to our sight as disconnected from each other, are each treated as isolated bodies. And then in their isolation, their effects upon each other are observed. This is like studying the human organism by examining first an arm and then a leg, in order afterward to understand the complete organism from the way in which the single members work together. But you can't actually comprehend the human organism by studying its separate parts. All investigation of the human body must have its starting point in the whole, from which we can then proceed to the separate parts. The same applies to the solar system, and also to the solar system in its relation to the whole visible stellar universe. For the sun, moon, earth and other planets are only parts of the whole system. Why should the sun, for instance, be considered as an isolated body? There is absolutely no reason why we should imagine the sun to be merely just where we see it, limited by the boundaries within which our eyes perceive it. In this connection, the philosopher Schelling was quite correct when he declined to ask the question, where is the sun, with any other meaning than where is its influence felt. If the sun acts upon the earth, the effects of such activity must necessarily belong to the sphere of the sun, and it is very wrong to extract a part from a whole and study that part by itself. But this is the very thing modern materialistic conceptions of the universe have set out to do, and their influences have grown stronger and stronger ever since the middle of the 15th century. This is what Goethe always fought against in his scientific investigations, and against which all true followers of his science must also fight. Goethe found himself compelled to draw attention to the fact that we must not study nature without man without keeping in mind the relation of nature to man. The study of natural phenomena outside man must be underpinned by an understanding of man's nature. The following example will show you the value of some of the assertions made by modern astronomy. Modern astronomy endeavors with all manner of arguments to speak of an elliptic path of the earth around the sun, It asserts that this motion was first initiated by that tangential propulsion of which I spoke yesterday 
in connection with the sun's gravitational attraction. But astronomy cannot and does not deny the fact that when speaking of attraction, not only does the sun attract the earth, but the earth also must attract the sun. This, however, obliges us to conclude that we cannot speak of an elliptical orbit of the earth around the sun, for if the attraction be mutual, we cannot have a one-sided motion of the earth around the sun, but both of them must revolve around a neutral point. In other words, this orbit cannot take place in a manner that would allow us to look on the sun's center as the pivot, but the pivot must be a neutral point, situated between the center of the sun and the center of the earth. In telling you this, I am not raising objections to astronomy. I am merely telling you what you can find for yourselves in astronomical books. Thus we are compelled to admit the existence, somehow or other, of a pivot between the two spheres. Our astronomy consoles itself by maintaining that this pivot or point lies within the sun itself. Both earth and sun then revolve around this point. And so, once again, we get no direct revolution of earth around sun, but the sun also revolves, revolving, however, around a point lying within itself. Thus ordinary astronomy has come so far as to assume as pivot a point that is not the center of the sun, but lies in the line connecting the sun with the earth, yet is still within the sun. But now we are confronted with another difficulty. The size of the sun has first to be calculated. The truth of the above assumption depends upon the calculated size of the sun. Upon the result of such calculation is built a conclusion which must, of course, possess a certain limited validity, calculations being made from evidence of the senses, but which need not necessarily be the criterion by which we judge what truly underlies nature's phenomena. Thus it is necessary to keep a strict eye upon modern astronomy, as well as on other sciences, in order to discern the places, and they are numerous, where science overreaches itself and gets into difficulties. This difficulty cannot be settled by studying the outer aspect of the phenomena. We can only arrive at a true result by examining the universe in its relation to man. We must, in the first place, take note of the previously explained connections between the universe and man, and then we must add a good many other facts before we can produce a perfectly true world picture. We have said before that we must imagine, first of all, ordinary ponderable matter, matter that can be weighed. Light we cannot weigh. It does not belong to the realm of ponderable matter, and neither does warmth, heat. First, then, we must imagine the ponderable. Then we must contrast this with the ether. We said it is wrong to consider the sun as consisting of ponderable matter like the earth's matter. The sun is something which is actually less than space, so to speak, a vacuum of space. It is something that sucks in, in contrast to the pressure exerted by ponderable matter. And we have to do not only with an accumulation in the sun of this absorbent ether in the outer universe, 
but also with the fact that this ether is distributed far and wide. Everywhere we find, coexisting with the force of pressure, the absorbent force of suction. We ourselves carry this force of suction in our own etheric bodies. This comprises all that we call space. Pressure and suction, these two we find in space. But not only do we possess our physical body, composed of ponderable matter which it assimilates and again expels, not only have we also an etheric body composed of absorbent ether, but we have in addition an astral body, if we may use the term body in this connection. What does the possession of this third body imply? It means that we have within us something that is no longer spatial, though it has a certain relation to space. This relationship can be proved when we realize that during waking hours the astral body interpenetrates the etheric and physical bodies. But the etheric body acts very differently when we are awake and when we are asleep. A different relation is established between the etheric and physical bodies when we wake, and this is caused by the astral body. It is active and works upon the spatial, though it is not itself spatial. It brings order and organization into the correlations of space. This organizing activity of the astral body within us takes place also in the outer universe, where it manifests in the following way. Try for the moment to consider space alone, and out of the whole visible heavens let us consider the regions that comprise the zodiac. I do not intend here to deal in detail with the various zodiacal signs, but let us consider the directions to which we look in the heavens when we turn, for instance, toward Aries, Ram, in the zodiac, then Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. All we have to note in the first place is that the space that lies before us as our visible universe is divided in this way. The signs merely denote the boundary of a certain section of space. Now we must not imagine that these directions of space can be treated in such a manner that one might say, there is empty space and I just draw a line somewhere into it. Such a thing as mathematics calls space simply does not exist. But everywhere are lines of force directions of force, and these are not equal, they vary, they are differentiated. We can distinguish between these twelve regions by realizing that if we turn in the direction of the sign Aries, the force we experience is a different one than it would be had we faced the sign Libra or Cancer. In each direction the force differs. Man will not admit this as long as he lives merely in the world of the senses. But as soon as he ascends to the imaginative life of the soul, he no longer experiences the directions in space as the same when facing Aries or Cancer, but feels their influence upon him as greatly differentiated. To give you a parallel, I might present the following to you. Imagine that you arrange round you a circle of twelve persons in such a manner that those most sympathetic to you occupy one part of the circle 
then comes the less sympathetic, until, on the other side, you have all those who are antipathetic to you. We are not imagining the degree of sympathy or antipathy to result from any personal emotion. It may be merely a matter of outward appearances. Now, if you turn round within the circle, twelve pictures pass before your vision and at the same time you experience a graduated series of differentiated sensations. Man becomes aware of such a series of sensations if, after attaining to imaginative perception, he moves around within the zodiac. A similar gradation of sensation, a similar gradation of vision, is produced in him. And it takes place within him the moment he escapes from the lack of differentiation of ordinary sense existence. So when we are dealing with these various sections of space, there is no sameness, for we must realize that each of these directions exerts a different influence upon us. You see, here a fact comes to light which is intimately connected with man's whole evolution. Had he remained at the stage of ancient consciousness, atavistic picture consciousness, he would still strongly experience the reality of this differentiation in the various sections of the heavens. He would have been conscious of a sensation of sympathy toward one direction of space and antipathy toward another. Man has, however, been torn away from this play of forces, which at one time surrounded him. He has been extracted from it, because his present organization has placed him into the sense world. But the fact that man is really organized in accordance with cosmic laws can even now be proved, and by quite external experiments, if attention is paid to certain phenomena. For it is by no means mere nonsense to say that certain sicknesses can be cured more quickly if the patient's bed is placed in an east-west alignment. It is no superstition, but a fact capable of definite proof. But this is not intended as a recommendation to each of you to place your bed in a certain position. I have had so many experiences of this kind that I feel it necessary to interject a word of warning here. In Berlin, for instance, at the end of an anthroposophical discourse, I once said there was a certain value in being able to put on my galoshes when it was raining without sitting down and that this could be done by first standing upon one leg and then upon the other, and I added, and one ought to be able to stand upon one leg. Later, on returning from London to Berlin, I found that this had led to members of the Anthroposophical Society there being recommended as esoteric training to stand upon one leg for a short time at midnight. Many assertions made about us, you see, start from such things. Time and again things of this sort get said, and then find their way into this or that newspaper article through the pen of some well or ill-disposed person, generally the latter. So I repeat, I have no wish at all to recommend that each of you place his bed in one particular position. Nevertheless, this fact and many others show that even today in the inner or subconscious part of our being, we still stand in a certain relation to these exterior spatial differentiations into which we have been placed. But how do we possess these relationships? 
We possess them through the astral body, which creates them. They are only possible to us because our astral body places us into the astral world, a world which, though acting upon space, is not itself spatial. We only conceive the zodiac in its full meaning when we regard it as representative of the astral world beyond. And now, without considering modern astronomical theories, let us examine these phenomena which appear to our sense of vision. We know that either actually or apparently the sun passes through the zodiac in various ways, in its daily course, in its yearly course, and again in its course through the Platonic year, through the precession of the equinoxes. This points to the fact that the effects upon us of that absorbent ether ball, the sun, vary greatly, as they come from the different directions of space. At one time the sun's workings affect us from a part of space we call Aries, at another time from a different part, and so on. Taking the case of an inhabitant of our own part of the globe, we can see that at any given time one half of the zodiacal signs face him, while the other half is obscured by the earth. In other words, in relation to this differentiation of space, we are turned directly toward the one part of the zodiac, while between the other part and ourselves stands the earth. Obviously, this has nothing whatever to do with either an actual or an apparent motion. It is a simple fact that at any given moment we face one part of the zodiac while the earth comes between us and the other part. Now, please, try to imagine these sections of space with our earth obscuring some of them. What does it mean for us? It is plain that the one half will influence us directly, the other not directly but rather, shall I say, through its absence. At one time we have the direct working of these differentiated regions of space, at another time the working of their absence, the effect, as it were, of their non-presence. This fact is something which is active within us and enables us to some extent to bring into a kind of relationship what is working directly upon us and what is absent from whose direct influence we are removed, for it opens up another possibility. Let us say that a certain kind of influence proceeds from the direction of the sign Cancer. This would be opposed by an influence from Capricorn, but the latter is taken away, is intercepted. Consequently, I have in me the influence of Cancer, and opposed to it the intercepted Capricornian influence. The influence of Cancer thereby gains entry to me in a sense, is given me to make something of. Of course, that which is absent cannot act upon me in the same way as that which is present. But I gain a certain influence upon the sign that acts upon me through the opposition exerted by its intercepted antithesis. Through the fact that I stand upon the earth, the celestial influences become quite different to what they would be were I hovering freely in space and directly exposed to them all.
I want you to note this point specially, and then you will realize that you cannot simply say, above us we have the signs, Aries, Pisces, Aquarius, etc., and below, Libra, Virgo, and so on. But you will have to conceive the whole as a kind of organization, with yourself harnessed into it. And as you progress, on account of the earth's revolution, from sign to sign, you are being carried through all these direct influences in turn. Here at one point the Scorpio influence was taken away from you, and there at another point you are carried into it. An analogy is the taking of food. You were hungry. The food was not there within you, but after the meal the food is present within you. The Scorpio influence was absent here, but at this other point became active. And so we form connections with the surrounding cosmos as we come into different relations with it through the earth's movement. But are we conscious of these varying influences while yet on the physical plane? No, we are not. We have seen that the physical world withdraws us from them. But the moment our astral body and ego withdraw from our physical and etheric bodies, we find ourselves within these forces. They act directly and strongly upon us. These extra-earthly, heavenly influences then affect that part of us no longer connected with the physical and etheric as powerfully as food upon the physical body. It is just this descent into the physical that is the cause of our withdrawal from these celestial influences. We may therefore consider the astral body as being, in a sense, part of the celestial and not of the terrestrial universe. For when, together with the ego, it is outside the physical body, we have to ascribe it to non-terrestrial influences. By considering the matter in this way, we are gradually brought to the conclusion that man becomes receptive to these celestial forces insofar as he ceases to act through the organs of his physical body. That is to say, when he is through this non-activity more or less in a state of sleep. Children are always more or less asleep. Therefore the child is much more receptive to celestial influences than an adult. As we grow up, we work our way further and further into earthly conditions. During childhood, all that is within the skin is still plastic and in a state of formation. The formative powers become less and less active with the years, until at a considerably later point in life they become very much diminished. This shows that the inward-directed formation process stands in a certain relation to the movements and configurations of the outer celestial universe. But the part of our being, which, as far as consciousness is concerned, remains in a continuous state of sleep, such as our heart activity, our digestive processes, etc., in fact, all the inner physical processes, all this part of our being, remains under the influences of the superphysical during the whole of our life. These processes are induced in the same way as is the process that goes on when I take a step forward consciously, only they are all directed inward instead of outward. 
Let us take a characteristic example. By means of the inner movements of the intestines, the chyme is propelled on its path. These are internal movements within the boundary of the human skin, and therefore, as we have said, dependent upon what is beyond the earth. Fundamentally, man as such is dependent upon the terrestrial, upon ponderable terrestrial matter, only as far as things outside his skin are concerned. But the moment any outer act or circumstance is translated into activity within the skin, then there begins in his organism an activity that is related to the supersensible. When you take a piece of sugar into the palm of your hand, you feel its weight physically. You raise it to your lips. The process is still physical. But as soon as you dissolve it on the tongue and it enters the sphere of taste, it no longer remains within the scope of earthly processes, but becomes subject to forces from beyond the earth. In order to find the working of the super-earthly, we must penetrate into what is enclosed within the human skin. This will lead you to realize that while you go about in the world bearing with you, as it were, your whole self, you are in the realm of the earthly. But as soon as you penetrate within, even only into your physical organization, you are no longer in the realm of the earthly, but have entered a sphere dependent upon super-earthly forces. You can easily prove for yourselves the fact that within you resides something that is not subsumed within purely earthly existence, if you recall the oft-repeated fact that the human brain floats in the meningeal fluid. If this were not the case, the pressure of the brain upon the floor of the skull would crush all the blood vessels. Any textbook dealing with such matters will tell you the weight of the brain. If you read Bischoff, for instance, you will notice he asserts that the female brain is much lighter than that of a male, an assertion rendered absurd later on, to the delight of the ladies, when it was found upon examination that the brain of Bischoff himself proved to be a good deal less in weight than the lightest of the female brains examined by him. I only mention this in passing as an example of the general value of human judgments. The human brain, however, possessing as it does a considerable weight, at least 1,200 to 1,300 grams, does not exert a pressure anything like commensurate with its actual weight, but only a weight of comparatively few grams because of the meningeal fluid. You remember the law of Archimedes, according to which the weight of an object is reduced by the weight of the water it displaces. Therefore the pressure of the brain is equal to only a few grams because it floats in fluid. If it pressed downward with its full weight, we could not use our brain for thinking. It overcomes its weight because it floats in fluid. We do not think with the matter of the brain, but with that which withdraws itself from the matter, with the upward striving forces, with what grows beyond the earth. And we must observe this in all parts of our organization. Just as we withdraw ourselves inwardly, from the forces of terrestrial gravity, in the case of the weight of the brain, parenthesis not in an outer sense, of course, for the brain upon the scales shows its full weight even while within us, close parenthesis, so do we similarly sever ourselves from earthly, physical, and chemical forces of other kinds.
What enables us to sever ourselves from these forces? It is the ego and the astral body. As soon as these act upon the etheric and physical bodies in such a way as to withdraw the etheric from the physical, the absorbent forces of suction, excuse me, the absorbent force of suction is then absent and only ponderable matter remains. Our ponderable form is not part of the earth, for the earth does not sustain it in its original form, but destroys it. The earth forces do not contain in them what gives man his form. That is not difficult to comprehend. For we have seen that we sever ourselves inwardly from earth forces. All that our astral body and ego endow us with relates us to forces that are active beyond the earth. Our next question must be, what is the nature of this relation? To ascertain this, we must in a certain way study the whole quality and nature of man. We find in the first place his complete form or figure. I do not mean by this the form which I would draw if I were to make a sketch of him, but man's whole configuration and organization. This would include, for example, the fact that the eyes are situated in the face and the heels on the feet, for this is part of the inner laws at work in man's form. Expressionistic painters may assert that the human being could be drawn in such a way that his toe takes the place of his nose, or that one eye is placed here and the other in his hand. Yes, there really are such people, but they only show how little inner relationship they have with the world. These days, materialistic thought has got as far as being able to depict single things separately, when they really belong together with the whole and ought not to be depicted in isolation. Firstly, therefore, we have man's complete form, and this, as you know very well, is not produced as a carved wooden figure is produced, but is formed from within. We cannot even re-carve any part that does not happen to meet with our approval. The human form is modeled by forces residing within our skin, and these are forces from beyond the earth. Therefore, when we contemplate a human form, we are looking at a super-earthly creation. Secondly, we can distinguish in man, apart from his form, all that comes under the category of internal motion. Take, for instance, the blood and the other bodily juices. These possess internal motion, which is also produced from within, is, so to speak, situated even deeper in us than our form. The latter presses forward to the periphery, while internal motion takes place entirely within, and it is again a process that stands in relation with the world that is beyond the earth. Thirdly, the activity of the organs. Organs such as the lungs, liver, spleen, etc., are responsible for something within us I refer to as a third aspect. Consider, for example, an important organ, the heart, of which I have recently often spoken. We realize that in a certain sense the heart has been woven together. By pursuing embryology, we find how the heart is gradually woven together or configured, as it were, by, by blood circulation and is not a primary form. And it is the same with other organs. They are the results of these circulations rather than the causes of them. Within the organ's circulation, 
comes to a standstill, in certain respects undergoes a kind of metamorphosis and proceeds further in a different way. To illustrate the idea, let us say we have a stream of water falling over a rock. It throws up a variety of water formations and then flows on. These formations are caused by the forces of equilibrium and motion at this place. Now imagine that suddenly all this were to petrify. A skin would be formed like a wall, then the rest would flow on again, leaving behind the form of an organic structure. We should have the current passing through the structure, coming out again, and flowing on further in an altered form. You can imagine something like this in the case of the flow of blood, as it circulates through the heart. I can only indicate these things here. They are well-founded, but only an indication of them can be given here. The way organs are formed depends upon the flow of inner forces. Yet they are also something within us that comes into relation with what is outside. We have here something which, as you can see from an example I will give, stands in closer relation with the earthly. Through these organs we are brought from the interior into contact with the exterior. Take the case of the lungs. The lungs are internal organs which are at the same time the basis of respiration. As the instrument for the transmutation of inhaled oxygen into exhaled carbonic acid, the lungs form a relation with something that has significance for man, but yet it exists outside him in the realm of the earthly. In this way we return, as it were, to the terrestrial environment via internal organic activities. The moment we pass through organic activity, beyond the boundary of our skin, we are outside in the terrestrial sphere. You see, all these processes that take place entirely within us, the formation and regulation of fluidic movements, etc., stand in a relationship with what is super-earthly, whereas when we come to the organs, we again approach the terrestrial. Here we have the union of heaven and earth in man. The lungs are built up by the super-earthly. But what they do with the oxygen brings them into relation with the earthly. And when man takes up still more earthly substances and receives them into his organism, he comes into immediate contact through the process of metabolism with the truly earthly. Thus we can study man from four different points of view. Complete or overall form, insofar as this is built up from within outward, internal motion, organic activity, and metabolism. If we study the overall form, which arises entirely through inner forces, we find that it has the least connection of all with the earthly. This point will be further explained tomorrow. We only begin to gain an understanding of such connection when we relate, as we shall do tomorrow, the complete form of man to the zodiac. The inner motion, the circulation of the blood, lymph, etc., can only be conceived in their reality when related to our planetary system. And when we come to the activity of the organs, we are already approaching the terrestrial. I gave you the example of the lungs which in respect to their internal structure are formed by cosmic forces, but where they take in oxygen 
come into relation with the air. Other human organs come into relation with water, others again with heat, etc. Therefore, in studying the activity of the organs, we come into contact with the world of the elements, with fire, water, air. Only when our observations are centered upon actual assimilation or metabolism are we in the sphere of the earth. The world of elements encompasses the earth as the sphere of water and air, and only when we encounter the process of metabolism do we approach our actual relationship with the earth itself. In this way we can discover our relationship to the universe surrounding us. Zodiac corresponds to overall form, world of the planets to internal motion, world of the elements, activity of the organs, earth to metabolism. And now consider, if we understand the human form in all its nature and conditions and find the possibility of tracing it back to the zodiac, that is, to the world of fixed stars, then and then only are we able to form from man an idea of all that is visible to us in surrounding space. For it cannot be investigated by mechanical or mathematical means, but only through gaining knowledge of man's complete form. Neither are planetary motions to be examined merely by means of a telescope. With a telescope, one merely finds their positions, setting it first to one star and then to the other, finding the angle and in this way discovering the positions. What is actually present is something that is formed from within, outward, which, in other words, corresponds to processes of the planetary world. It is by a study of the activities and effects of man's bodily fluids and circulation that we shall learn to understand the planetary activities. Similarly, if we comprehend our own organic activities, we shall also understand what goes on in the world of the elements. And when we are able to understand what happens in man at the moment when earthly substance is introduced into his metabolic system, we shall be able to distinguish and spatially separate earthly influences from all other super-earthly influences. The end of Lecture 5